Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Crew Lab community. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Crew Lab Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best and innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Crew Lab Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. We'll also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who can't join us live today. So we ask that you be mindful of keeping your microphones muted to avoid disrupting the presentation, as well as keeping your own webcams off to help us stream smoothly. At the conclusion of our guest presentation, we will have a question and answer session. So if you have a question, just go ahead and type it into the chat as we go along here, and I'll go through them and ask them to our guests in the order that I receive them. So the end of 2021 is almost here, and we are both grateful and excited to have a fantastic guest on the broadcast today to close out the season. We are joined by Colonel Anthony A. Wood, United States Marine Corps retired, whose service in uniform extended over three decades. In addition to commanding infantry and reconnaissance units at many levels, his wide-ranging career impacted a number of forward-thinking Marine Corps efforts. On assignment to Marine Corps headquarters, he served as the principal author in developing the U.S. and Navy Marine Corps maritime pre-positioning concept and then supervised the implementation of a national strategic response capability based on forward positioning three squadrons of specially configured ships with the supplies and equipment to support Marine brigades. While serving as Chief of Staff for Marine Forces in the Pacific, Colonel Wood was dispatched to Russia in 1993, where over a three-week peri three period of negotiations, he successfully concluded a major tension reduction agreement and multi-year exercise program with senior Russian military leaders in the Pacific Theater. His last Marine Corps billet was as founder and first commanding officer of the Marine Corps Warfighting Laboratory from 1995 to 1998, where under his leadership, the laboratory spearheaded the four-year series of Marine Corps Sea Dragon experiments designed to recast military capabilities in a mold appropriate to emerging counter-terrorist requirements. But today, we'll be focusing on a story from the earlier part of his career. In January 1975, as North Vietnamese forces closed on Saigon, Major General Homer Smith, United States Army, the Defense Attaché in Saigon, transferred then Captain Wood to the Defense Attaché Office where he was directed to join the newly formed special planning group with the mission of secretly developing a plan for the evacuation of Saigon. In the course of that operation, he worked with a group of over 100 American civilian volunteers who assumed great risk to remain without protection and evacuate over 5,000 persons from the collapsing capital to the safety of waiting Marine helicopters. A fascinating story in its own right, the evacuation also holds a number of lessons for contingency planning that remain highly relevant in the present day. So, Colonel Wood, welcome, and I will turn the mic over to you. Thank you, Ian. Um, in case I uh, forget to say, I'm honored to be asked to, uh, to talk with you today. Uh, this was a long time ago. I think the relevance of what, if there is any, of what I'm going to offer has to do with my view that we need to, as from the time you're a company grade officer on, critical thinking and analysis of what we're up against anywhere needs to be the norm. And Saigon is a perfect example of the Alice in Wonderland or to some nightmarish situations you can get into. Um, when Bon Me Too, fell to the North Vietnamese invasion uh, in early March, March the 13th, I believe, 1975, I was, uh, I had a special forces team, an army special forces team under a Marine, it was an interesting arrangement, in northern South Vietnam, researching and trying to establish uh, and close the mission in action for a strange outfit called the Joint Casualty Resolution Center. As soon as the North Vietnamese attacked, I received a message by uh, Air America helicopter. Air America was the means by which we operated because there were no US forces left in Thailand or Vietnam to insert and extract us. That played upon what happened later. 
at any rate, I, I got the message to report to the defense attache. I've never, I didn't know what a defense attache was. So that's the beginning of the Alice in Wonderland that, that turned out. Uh, Ian said, a hundred volunteers. Um, yes, but here's the situation briefly that I walked into, because the volunteers make no sense probably to most of you. An ambassador that forbade any overt plans for evacuation, any, including the preparation of sites. So we sat down, the two of us, uh, George Petrie, an Army Special Forces captain, and I, who General Smith had ordered to the special planning group. And when I asked him uh, where the special planning group was, he looked at me and said, in his soft Virginia drawl, you are the special planning group. And we stopped asking questions at that point, went down to this bunker where we'd been assigned. And do you want me to go ahead and tell how this started, Ian, or would you like to pepper me with questions? Uh, no, I think if you uh, if you give some background, that'll that'll be good for right. in the audience who are not familiar themselves. So we sat down in this bunker. And we we had a couple of obvious things that I, I don't think we would have called it anything like clear thinking, but the enemy was already pouring into South Vietnam. It wasn't a question of taking our time. And General Smith had made it very clear that we absolutely were forbidden to tell anyone what we were doing, including his staff. Now, he had 50 colonels, lieutenant colonels, Navy captains and Navy commanders and Air Force officers on his staff. So I'm, you can read into that whatever you want. People have asked the question for years, how did two, I was 29 years old as a Captain George was, I think, a year older, but I was senior. Anyway, um, how did two captains who were approaching 30 years old get assigned to do a, a secret review? I don't know, but we were. And so we did. And the very first thing was we asked some very clear questions. How many, who are they, and where are they? It turned out it was all the U.S. mission, which was enormous, over 20,000, huge mission, all over Saigon and 13 nationalities. Then the next thing was, how the hell do we get a grip on where these people are? And um, so we looked at each other and said, okay, no matter how many there are, and no matter where they are, we're going to have a surface evacuation plans by buses, and we're gonna have a straggler pickup plan from the rooftops using light helicopters. Now, we didn't have any buses, we didn't have any light helicopters, and we didn't have maps yet. But we knew that we were gonna do it that way because there wasn't any other way to do it. So this, this gets back to my first observation is, you can, as a Marine, get into some very strange situations for which there are no rules. And this was one of those. There weren't any rules other than we had to get it done. And so then the next thing I said to George, two days into this now, where we've already gone to Air America, who we had worked with while we were doing the MIA operations, and said, how many of your pilots will volunteer to stay in Saigon and help us uh, complement the bus pickup from the rooftops? 26 of 28 pilots volunteered to stay in Saigon. So that famous picture that you see of the of the Huey, it's actually a UH-1H, uh, not a Huey, but close, on the top of the building with the people climbing up the ladder, that's not a, a, a military bird, that's an Air America Huey. Uh, they operated uh, for, from 8.30 in the morning to 17.30 in the afternoon on April the 29th, clearing the rooftops as part of our plan to collect in the city. Then, so at this point, way back in March, we said a helicopter plan to rooftops and a bus plan in the streets. And then the Vietnam, the NVA's advance picked up enormously in speed and they started attacking from the north into Quang Tri at the same time they were attacking from the west. 
So now they're coming at Saigon in a pincer movement, 11 divisions, armor and a lot of artillery. And I turned to George one night, I'll never forget it, in the bunker. We both had gotten back and I said, uh, we don't have a staff. We don't have any units. There, there are no military units in Vietnam, no U.S. military units. There is a whole Marine brigade offshore, but the ambassador won't allow any of the Marines to come ashore. So that was the beginning of our meeting with embassy officials. Very quickly, they were so hostile that uh, eventually the security warden, who is the guy in charge of security at a, at a U.S. embassy all over the world, directed us not to come to the embassy or consult with his staff again. Amazing, but it happened. So we, we have to shield our efforts from the embassy staff. And we have to shield them from the South Vietnamese. And that left the question of how are we going to get the buses? Who's going to drive the buses? Who's going to map the bus routes? Who's going to prepare the rooftops? Who's going to fly the helicopters? All those questions came up. And then I asked one because the North Vietnamese advance had picked up steam once more. I said, George, what happens? This was over a drink in the bunker. We had a bottle of scotch in the bunker. What happens if they come faster and we're not finished? What are we going to do with all these evacuees and all these people if they bust into the city before the evacuation can go? Well, he looked at me and he said, I'll remember his comment, Jesus, Tony, what are you getting at? I said, we're going to have to build plan B. We're going to have to build an internment facility inside the DAO compound next to Tonsonut Air Base. We're going to have to have a place to put maybe 5,000 people. I've just pulled it out of the thin air, but it wasn't, it wasn't an unreasonable figure. Maybe 5,000 people if we can't, if, we, if they get to Saigon, if their advance picks up enough speed to get to Saigon before we can evacuate. Well, uh, so we started on Project Alamo. In the end, Project Alamo, uh, a fortified camp, essentially, didn't serve as an internment facility, but it was the key to the evacuation because all of the buses and all of the rooftop helicopters emptied into Project into the Alamo where the Marine helicopters flew in from the task force to pick them up on April the 29th. It was the staging and reception point. It was the command and control center for the evacuation. And it was the key to organizing and supporting the refugees as they were brought in from all over the city and then gathered in sticks for evacuation to see. So the Alamo, it fits into my discussion here. Now, the thoughts, everything you're hearing, this is my own view. It's the view of a doer. We were assigned to review, to plan, and nobody told us that we were going to have to execute. But after a little while, there was no other effort. Now, Marines will fill vacuums, and we couldn't find anyone else that was preparing. And eventually all the questions were being asked to DAO and some of them directly to George and I, where do we go? When do we do this and so forth? So George looked at me and I said, we're going to have to get our own workforce, George, and there's only going to be one way to do it. We're going to have to go secretly. I don't know how we keep it a secret because eventually it's got to come out. We're going to have to recruit Americans who will work at night and help us. And so we did. And we recruited all, a, a force that eventually exceeded 100 people, but it kept changing because people got ordered out of country. And they, they built, they drove buses, the armored buses with flak jackets to protect the participants. They manned rooftops. They learned to control a helicopter landing site on a rooftop with only four hours of training. Some of them were women. They, they 
people from Pacific Architects and Engineers built special sliding barricades to block the stairwells up to the landing sites of the 13 buildings along the routes. So we had eight bus routes and 13 helicopter landing sites on buildings that would support them. There's a whole story behind that, but it was a major effort to secretly take down telephone aerials and, uh, uh, excuse me, television aerials and telephone lines so that, and then paint the, paint the H on the roof of the buildings and hide this from the embassy, yeah. So the factors that we faced, and this might be an important point. So who was the enemy? Chaos in the cities. George fell with Da Nang and I fell with Hui. And we had tape recorders in our utility pockets. And we talked our way through the collapse of the two cities, watching babies being thrown through the doors of helicopters, chaos and panic like we had never seen in our lives. And 250,000 refugees flooded into Saigon from the two cities. Now think about that. That's a quarter of a million people. There was no place for them. And half of them were armed because they were leaderless Arvin soldiers. So the city's now swimming in armed <clears throat> soldiers. This is about the 25th of March. Now, this has all happened in 12 days. We've been formed. Two, two of the largest cities in Vietnam have fallen. The city, Saigon is panicking now or beginning to panic. And we are recruiting volunteers. The Alamo is being built by volunteers at night. Uh, we're flying in C-141s from the West Coast. I can't remember exactly how we got that authority, but at some point, General Smith said that we could go ahead and dictate the priorities on cargoes. So we had another lieutenant, uh, who Air Force lieutenant, and uh, he gave us a hand and we started stocking the Alamo uh, with a, a wide variety of things because we didn't know whether we'd have to use it or not to protect the eventual evacuees if the North Vietnamese got here before, their, before our, <laughs> we were ready. Okay. So um, at this point, the, the uh, oh well, the effort to identify who we have to evacuate entailed wildly different actions. Because uh, as an example, I bought the, the membership to a number of the social clubs because it was the only way to get the, the dependent status on the 13 allied countries whose dependents and officers and men were we were also responsible for, besides all the American civilians and military. We built a huge pin map that came to define evacuation planning for Saigon. General Smith would come down every other day and look at the pin map to decide how many we still were facing and so forth. By, on the 1st of April, 28 days, four weeks before we evacuated, we still had over 24,000 people in Saigon and very few of them were getting on the planes. Lots of planes were being flown into Tonsonut to evacuate people, but most of them left less than a third full. Trying to get the Americans to leave their very comfortable billets and believe us, was a huge uh, effort, and the embassy, of course, made very little effort to help at that point. So we're very concerned, very concerned at this point, that the size of it is greater. General Smith calls me in on, on the 5th, I think, somewhere in there, and General Bond is there as well, Brigadier General Bond, his deputy. Brilliant, wonderful, courageous guy. And he's in charge of evacuation planning for the whole mission now. The mission is every American agency in a country. That's the American mission. And the king of the mission is the ambassador. And most of you may know, but you, I, a lot, it's amazing how many military officers don't know that until the ambassador turns over control to the military uh, officer in charge, in this case, it would have been General Kerry offshore, Brigadier General Kerry, the ambassador is king over everything that happens in the country everything, including all military operations. So April 5th, 
Two chains of command are now going on. Secretly, General Kerry is answering to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we are feeding information to him. Openly, General Kerry, I mean, the uh, General Smith, uh, let me say this again. General Smith is answering to the Joint Chiefs of Staff secretly, and General Smith is answering to the ambassador openly. The two chains of commands are not in agreement. Messages are arriving saying, emphasize evacuation of as many people as possible as fast as possible. This is during the period I called the phony evacuation, uh, the period of th the first three weeks in April, because the, for, for all practical purposes, the mission was not being thinned. They weren't being forced out. Finally, General Smith closed the commissary, closed the PX, and we started forcing people out. In the meantime, the flow of volunteers working with us at night had grown to 100. So the North Vietnamese are closing on Saigon. Only a few of the Arvin divisions are really fighting effectively. And George looks at me and says, how are you going? Because I'm responsible now. We've divided it up. I'm responsible for the surface evacuation of the city. And George is going to be responsible for the Air America light helicopter evacuation of the rooftops. We hope to get three quarters of the people remaining out in the buses, and that will leave a thousand or two thousand on the roofs. General Smith asked me on the 5th of April, how many people can you get out? I, sa I said, sir, with 40 running buses for whom we don't have drivers or guides yet. And if we get 32 helicopters, we might be able to get 8,000 people out in eight or nine hours. And he said, Tony, he actually called me by my first name, which is the first time he'd done that. He said, Tony, we have many more than that. I said, sir, we do not have the assets ashore for any more than eight or 9,000 people. And that's assuming we somehow find a way to protect the buses. And he said, what kind of protection are they going to need? I said, well, they're going to need protection from snipers because they will be shot at. They're going to need protection from, from rioters because they will attempt to dump them over. We know from our day and a half each in Da Nang and Hue, which collapsed with wildly uh, wiping out streets, just incredible rioting, that we're going to have the same in Saigon. And we've got all these armed rioters and armed deserters in the city. So we have to find a way to protect them. And he said, well, what are your assets? And I said, well, we're, bolt we're bratting flak jackets to the buses below the windows. These are the old flak jackets. And we're putting mesh inside the windows. And that's it at this point, sir. We have nothing more than passive protection. And we're going to have five or 6,000 people at a minimum in those buses all day when the balloon goes up. And he said, well, if that's all we can do, that's all we can do. I said, that's all we can do right now, sir. Three days later, I was taking a trip on this on an American taxi, a government, U.S. government taxi, which there was a whole fleet of them, all black and white Fords. And they took people all over Saigon on official business between agencies. And I happened to see the taxi driver reach down and fill out a chit when he picked me up. And I said, where do you have do you save those chits? And he said, oh, yes, we have a warehouse full. We, everybody brings their chits in at the end of the day. I went to the warehouse. Now, I was later charged with threatening this guy, but I didn't threaten him. All I did, I did, him, I did allow him to see my 45 in its holster, but I did allow him to see it. That's not threatening. Um, and I told the guy at the warehouse that we were commandeering the records for the last 90 days. And we went in and took the boxes out and we flew them to Thailand in a, a U-21 that the CIA had given us on loan and a pilot. So we had a bird that we could use. And in Thailand, we had the computers that had planned the campaign uh, for, the, for the prisoners in North Vietnam. 
and they took all of these taxi records and they ran them through the computers and built a population map. And it was the first active population map for Saigon. We used it uh, for all kinds of things. Well, the situation got very bad on the 9th. General Bonn was arrested by Marines from the embassy and flown out of the country. This is the deputy defense attache and the guy in charge of evacuation planning in Saigon. He's now been flown out by the ambassador. He released a message which he thought the ambassador had approved, uh, asking for a company of Marines to help protect the Alamo. Now, the Alamo had about, oh, a mile of circumference, maybe a little less than a mile uh, at any rate. And we had 12 Marines for the entire security. So he had asked for a company of Marines and the ambassador went wild, had him arrested and flown out of the country. Within hours, he was flown out of the country. He didn't even have time to collect his, his belongings. The ambassador was so furious. He was so certain, he kept emphasizing, we're going to get a negotiated settlement. We do not need to evacuate. We do not need to overtly plan for evacuation. Well, that was on the 9th of April. On the 5th of April, a C-5 with 300 babies and 26 volunteers had undergone explosive decompression at 20,000 feet and resulting crash killed almost all the volunteers and most of the babies. They were our volunteers. So we lost a, a fourth of the workforce overnight. And can you imagine the impact on the remaining volunteers when the 26 of them are suddenly dead? Well, the fourth vector in Saigon, in addition to the enemy, in addition to chaos, in addition to the restrictions from the embassy, the fourth vector is the morale and the leadership of the volunteers, because it's critical. There is no one else. They are doing all of the work. They're preparing the rooftops. They're, they're learning to drive the buses secretly at night, not very far, like 12 feet or so. Forward and backward, that's all we could do. They had to keep it secret. They're training for the rooftops. They're building the Alamo. All of this is being done by American volunteers between 50 and 60 years old, more or less. I had to find a way to protect them. So here's how the plan went. I uh, commandeered 30, I think 30, maybe a few more, 30 of the black and white Ford taxis and had them put secretly in a warehouse. And we got a group of Vietnamese guys and we told them their families were guaranteed departure in the evacuation if they would convert these into national police cars. We had a national police photo of a national police car. And so we started converting all of these taxis into national police cars. Now this was going to be an effective bluff for only one reason. Saigon was under martial law and the national police were shooting the citizens who rioted. So everybody in Saigon knew and hated and was terror-stricken at the sight of national police cars. So the plan was very simple. The fake national police cars would be attached at each end of every four bus stick. Every four buses in a stick would have a national police car in front and one in back with blue flashing lights, sirens, Venetian blinds in the windows, and a guy inside in a national police helmet, an American, uh, and a Vietnamese driver in a national police helmet. Now, it was a terrible plan, but you see, it was the only plan because the Marines weren't going to be allowed ashore. The ambassador said, nope, they're not coming ashore. Well, I had to have some way to protect all these civilians in these buses that were being collecting on six routes, not eight. Two routes had collapsed completely by the 28th in, into rioting and uh, roadblocks. Texas and Texas. so I've named them after the famous Western trails. Anyway, we had six routes going and 13 rooftops on the 29th. Started at 8.30 in the morning, 
after a major uh, bombardment the night before that had killed our Marines at the gate and uh, taken down some of the perimeter of the Alamo, 144 rockets had come in plus artillery. All the trailers that we had lived in were burning. Um, and it, it, it essentially made it clear that we thought that the evacuation would go. Here's another tip. If you have to evacuate a city, you always want to try to pull it off at night. It's a far easier thing than when daylight aids the rioters and the, the chaos. However, the ambassador wouldn't even see General Smith. General Smith came down and told us, we're not going to go tonight. The next morning, he was able to convince the ambassador. He took him to Tonsonut, where the entire airport was burning, as well as the planes, including one USC-130, two of which got off in time before the bombardment hit, but one didn't. Um, at any rate, that convinced the ambassador to allow to turn it over to General Smith. And when he did that, General Smith immediately ordered the evacuation. The bluff worked. We thought we would be lucky to get two full cycles of the 30 or 40 buses on six routes through the city. We got almost four, almost four cycles and about 6,000 people into the Alamo on the buses by 1730. The other uh, 1,000 or 1,500 were picked up on the rooftops by Air America, who flew all day long, refueling in the street and then refueling at sea on the Navy ships. Several of their helicopters got pushed over before the Navy understood they were on our side. Amazing. Lesson learned. Make sure everybody's coordinated on the net before it starts. Anyway, so at the end of the day in this Alice in Wonderland tale, uh, we successfully pulled off a very risky giant bluff on the rioters and on the chaos with the fake national police cars. And uh, we had nobody killed. Heart, yes, we had heart attacks. We had pistol whippings um, and other injuries, fairly significant, but no heart, no, no fatalities. Nobody, none of the passengers were killed. And uh, Ian, why don't I let you take it from here? Okay, great. Um, that's that is a ton to chew on, sir. Oh yeah, um, let me wrap one thing up. Okay, sure. The the, the the military General Kerry's helicopters began landing at fifteen thirty in the Alamo. Uh, we had four landing sites in the Alamo, and uh, they did an incredible job of of uh, entering and flying out the the exit of air management and air control. Because, uh, of course, we had Air America also landing in the Alamo as they brought in people off the, off the, sit, uh, the rooftops. The Marines flew 544 missions, including off the roof of the embassy later at, at that night. That was a nightmare, the mess at the embassy. Um, but and in the morning, 544 missions, the largest military airlift, helicopter airlift in history, and did a great job. That is pretty much how Saigon went down or up. Your call. Yeah, as a helicopter pilot myself, we, we go up. That's what we do. Um, no, sir, that, thank you very much for that. Um, I just put a message out into the chat for everyone in the audience, but I'll re reiterate it here. If you have any questions, uh, you want to you just go ahead and start throwing them in the chat, and I'll, I'll ask them as, as I get them in the time we got. So um, the first thing I had for you, sir, is kind of a – it's a more generalized question, but, you know, I'm, I'm tying it back to what Marine Corps University does. And I'm specifically thinking of, you know, there's a captain school here and you were a captain, you know, in 03 executing this, um, this massively complex and hazardous plan um, on your own uh, with, with virtually, you know, no, no support that you could call and accept what you were able to go out and touch and grab was you know and so at the captain school we teach you know or they teach aspects of planning and preparation had there been anything in your own training and education as a captain to that point that even remotely prepared you or proved useful um that you drew on as you were making these decisions and plans day to day yeah um there had been L let me just make one correction uh to the impression we had a lot of help beginning a week before the evacuation, 
General Gray sent a, a team of people ashore to begin to secretly to begin developing the command and control uh, in the Alamo to bring in the, the helicopters, which we didn't know when that would happen, but he did that. And he loaned us a lot. And then uh, we had, we had uh, now Major General Livingston retired, spent 24 hours with us in the Alamo, um, trying to make sure that we had the landing sites and so forth squared away. So at the very last minute, illegally, and in despite the ambassador's ban on it, General Gray had flown in, or Colonel Gray and General Carey had flown in a couple of senior Marine officers to assist us because they knew that once the helicopter and the lift began, we'd have to have a you know a tremendous amount of command and control. So they even put a uh, sandbagged position where uh, Lieutenant Twitter lay down on the roof of the Alamo help uh, coordinating with the helicopters. It was amazing, but he did a good job. Okay, so I wanted to correct that. We did get a lot of help at the last minute, fortunately. All right, what else? Okay, you know, I appreciate that, sir. All right, so I, I do have a few more, but I, questions are coming in the chat. I want to make sure we oh, get yeah. those, okay. those first. So um, first question I got is- Yeah, from... I had uh, I had the, the uh, amphibious warfare school. I, I was a graduate of AWS and it actually did help. Um, it, it would have been a lot better if they'd had a course on clear thinking and an and mission analysis, because the truth of the matter is captains are smart. And, you know, they're underutilized, like most young Marines, vastly underutilized. They're much more capable, I think, than, than we give them credit for. But if we had a directed course on critical thinking, then, you know, it would have been easier to analyze. As I told you, the vectors, the vectors were not in any particular order. The enemy closing and threatening. The ambassador virtually a major obstacle to the safety of the entire operation. We had to find ways to get around him and hide from him. The chaos in the city and the morale of a volunteer force on which everything depended. That's what I spent my nights thinking about. And not worrying about it, there wasn't any time. The other thing, the other vector, if you want to call it that, was a lack of the assets to safely evacuate the people. It was a terrible bluff. It was the worst plan I've ever come up with, but it was the only plan because we didn't have access to anything else. Okay. Okay, thank you for that, sir. And uh, I, so that first question I have for you is from uh, Eric Walters, who also threw out that as a professor of critical and creative thinking for the US Army, your statement there was music to his ears. Um, so his question is, given the subsequent non-combatant evacuation operation training that, you know, the MACTAPs and the MUSE started doing, what do you think that we did well as a result of what you experienced and what didn't we adequately get good at given the usual constraints of resources? What could have been done in MU workups that we didn't employ? What? Say the last question again that you did that we didn't employ. What yeah. was it? What could have been done in MU workups that we didn't employ? Well, first of all, we could have had a small cadre of Marines flown in. Um, eventually, we did, but we had to fly them in in civilian clothes without arms, if you could believe it, in the Air America helicopters uh, to help us. Thirty of them, but. That's a tough question because if the Marine, if young Marine officers, and I think it should start right in, in EWS now, are taught critical thinking uh, or whatever, whatever the, the latest moniker is, um, that in itself is a huge step forward. And the second thing I think is you mentioned when I went to Russia, yes, uh, General Gray out of the blue nabbed me as a lieutenant colonel and said, go to Quantico and and uh, I'm sure you can find a bunch of smart guys. That's quote. Um, and I want a plan for the I want a master plan for the ground combat element of the Marine Corps. And you've got six months that can happen, too. 
and then you can evacuate Saigon at 29. A lot of different things can happen to Marines. And key, uh, the key is critical thinking and thinking out of the box. Uh, also, when you're in a really tight situation, don't worry about any formal planning. We had to plan, execute, and change all at the same time. And uh, and there just wasn't any time. It was an emergency. We only had six weeks all together to do the whole thing. Um, and that was with the restrictions that, that we had to hide from the embassy. Um, and we had to use uh, people 50 to 60 years old and put them in harm's way, lots of them in harm's way. Um, and that decision was among the toughest. Because you see, when I sent those buses out with those fake national police cars, can you imagine what would have happened if a real national police car had uncovered one? They would have shot them on sight and then gunned the buses. They were shooting their own people. They wouldn't have hesitated to shoot uh, fraudulent national police cars. But without them, we never would have made it through the barricades and the rioters. Take your pick. All right, great. Thank I know you, I didn't I, I didn't give him the answer he wanted to hear, but I'm not sure I know what the answer is. Well, I mean, there may not be an answer you wanted to hear. It's just finding out what you know, what what was done or yeah. uh, what wasn't done from you. That's true. Way. It's a good question. Uh, okay, so next question I got from um, Visalji Odedra, uh, who's been with us before on these things, so good to see you again. And the question is, when coordinating aeromedical evacuations, what was the most difficult factor for yourself and the teams? Well, uh, the, the evacu... Okay. The evacuation comes in three parts. Preparing for the evacuation... Then the evacuation itself comes in collecting all over the city by light helicopters from 13 rooftops and 40 buses operating on six routes. That's the collection of the evacuees to the Alamo. Then there is the evacuation from the Alamo in CH-46s and CH-53s from four landing sites to the task force. And this goes all night. So when you it, the evacuation comes in, the collection throughout the city, and then the evacuation from the Alamo to the task force offshore. Uh, Air America does the helicopter operations during the day, had a terrible time refueling, terrible time. And, and I told you that the Navy was not helpful. It took, uh, oh, it took, two or three hours to get the Navy to cooperate and refuel Air America helicopters at sea because their refueling uh, uh, terminal at Tonsonut was burning. So uh, they, they landed in the street in front of uh, the Alamo and refueled from a truck there. They, they, those guys did a great job, but it was the refueling was very difficult for Air America. Uh, but they, they did a good job. And then the coordination uh, in and out of the Alamo was a major air traffic control plan because we had, we had, well, you probably can imagine what it was like, Ian, but it was, uh, they fortunately, uh, both uh, General Kerry and General Gray's staff had provided a whole bunch of guys secretly into the Alamo and we had built a command and control bunker in there which they then uh, got the radios up and running in. Uh, now, did that... Uh, finding out where the people were was the hardest single thing. The next hardest thing was uh, deciding where to map the evacuation surface routes through the city. The next hardest thing was trying to coordinate the buses in the city. I, I had a Jeep. The Jeep was flipped and burnt very early in the morning by the rioters. So I moved into a bus. Fortunately, one bus in every four, we had put a Motorola radio. And some of you may remember the beige Motorola radios that used to be in taxi cabs. They work in cities. Hint, 
make sure you have a radio that works in cities. Um, anyway, and I controlled the surface evacuation in the city from a bus for the rest of the day. Then, then there is the masses. We had 6,500 people on an average in the Alamo. Now, that's a huge crowd to manage into four helicopter landing sites, break them into sticks. And by the way, they're all panicking. Keep them under control, feed the babies and so forth. And um, that was a major effort in itself. And you can't imagine what panic does to the behavior of otherwise very sensible people. There's a lot of panic in an evacuation. And you need, you need a lot of very, very steadfast Marines. Three days or four days before the evacuation, we had catch a baby day. And that's when, for some reason, about the 22nd of April, I think, they had a big panic all over around Tonsudet and they started throwing babies over the wire. And I yelled to the Marines, drop your weapons and catch the babies. They did. They didn't hesitate. And uh, to my knowledge, they caught every baby. Uh, we had about a dozen of a dozen new 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 people inside the wire. Very young people then. Anyway, uh, so what was the most difficult? They were all different, very different. And that's another thing. It's it's not just herding them to one site. You may have to herd them. As I said, we had thirteen landing sites to which people had to go to, and what we had learned. By, by going up and falling with two collapsing cities was that the very first thing the rioters look for is a helicopter landing site. So what do you think we did? We went to Pacific Architects and Engineers and had them build sliding barricades that at night we moved into the stairwells of all of those 13 buildings and they could pull those over to block off the stairwell once the landing site was occupied. And of course, that would make it unusable by anyone else, but at least it would block the rioters. So um, I wonder if that's the answer to the question. There was a lot of coordination of different kinds, most of it without sophisticated radios. Make sense? Yes, sir. And I, I imagine it'd be hard to pick one thing that was difficult because everything was difficult um, in the, in its own way. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that any the hardest thing of all was figuring out how many people and where they were. That was that bordered on impossible. Uh, but we did the best we could. Okay. Um, well, thank you, sir. So the next question is, I'm, I'm going to kind of um, expand it a little bit because it does, uh, I think there's other flavors to it, but um, the core question is from Bill Anderson, who was asking, how did you identify the rooftop evacuation sites? I was wondering if you could expand that a little bit to how um, you, you mentioned, like, you know, starting this process, you didn't even have maps of the area. How, how did you collect the sort of the intelligence and assessment of where, you know, of routes and evacuation sites absent that information. Okay. And we and had a leg up there. We first of all went through, we had, we were given 48 hours to review four plans about four inches thick each, uh, contingency plans for the evacuation of Saigon that were about seven years old. Um, the first thing, first assumption in every plan was assume the South Vietnamese forces will provide security. Well, that's ridiculous. If the if the South Vietnamese are going to provide security, why are we evacuating? So we took the routes. We started with the routes, the bus routes. We started with the bus routes that were in those plans. And we said, OK. Well, they weren't bus routes. They were routes that that vehicles were going to use. And uh, we looked at these and we said, how many U.S. controlled buildings are along each route? You have to begin with what you can control. Remember the statement I made earlier? If you can't put your hands on it, don't use it in evacuation planning. You have to have control of the asset as you plan, as you plan. 
because nobody's going to be able to do advanced planning in a situation like this. You're going to plan and execute at the same time virtually. So we took these, uh, we took the, we looked at the U.S. controlled buildings, phase one, phase two, George and uh, a man named Philippi, who was the operation officer for Air America. George and Philippi dressed in labor, uh, labor coveralls, went up to each U.S. controlled building and assessed its capability as a landing site. Now, that meant several things. Number one, structurally, could it, could it support a Huey? UH-1H in this case. Most of them are H's, a couple of Bell Rangers um, mixed into that. Then the second thing they look at, of course, is the approach. Then how many telephone wires and, and uh, television aerials are there? Are there any other massive obstructions that we can't quickly, had to be quickly, get rid of. Okay, so we mapped them out and then we compared them to where the populations were were billeted. Now this changed. So every now and then the bus routes would get changed because the population changed as it shrank. And we they uh, the general really tried, General Smith really tried to move people into the buildings along the routes. It wasn't very successful. Most people just ignored him. But Americans are amazingly stubborn until the artillery rounds start landing in town. Then they're not stubborn anymore. Uh, so anyway, eventually we, we reduced the number of, of uh, landing sites, rooftop landing sites, to 13 on U.S.-controlled buildings. And we said, okay, that building stays U.S.-controlled no matter what. No matter what an agency says, that building stays, and if, if, you know, we had monitors in the buildings, you call us if there's any problem, because those can't change. On the 1st of April, we froze everything, the roots and the, and the rooftops, because we had too much work to do. And so we had to find the helicopters, we had to find the pilots, we had to find bus drivers, we had to find uh, guides. Hell, we had to get the buses. And uh, so everything's happening at once. And you learn to operate in chaos because uh, there is a certain element of it. I mean, it's not neat. Um, and people get very tired. And volunteers, you don't give orders to. You help them, you encourage them, and um, you encourage them to help each other. Leading volunteers was one of the great lessons of Saigon for me. Huge lesson. Okay. Okay, great. And um, I've, I've got a couple questions. I'm, I'm going to kind of try and wrap it into a, a final thought for you here, sir. Um, and uh, because I think, you know, probably on, on many people's minds, if not most, is wondering how this sort of compared from your experiences in Saigon to what we just saw over the summertime coming out of Afghanistan. And so I think the... Um, Let's see, Adrian Tan here had had sort of the first question, Lieutenant Colonel Kobeck, and, and I'm going to try and roll us all into one is, um, you know, uh, obviously people have sort of looked at parallels or lack of parallels between them to see what was, if there was similarities or differences. But I, I guess from your experience, your perspective and your experience, did you, did it, did you see anything that seemed to, you know, things that you came up with for Saigon that seemed to translate into what was done? coming out of Kabul, or did you see anything that looked like it had it had built on those lessons to, in the, in the midst of giant chaos, to at least have, you know, improved, you know, been better than the than the last time that was done um, in terms of how the evacuation was conducted? Well, um, first of all, in 1993, I sent th that package that I showed you uh, a a, uh, a one-hour lecture based on it to uh, command and staff college and to the National War College. After I'm a graduate, of, you know, I graduated from the National War College in '91, and I sent it to them, and they both came back and told me it was a historic event and would never happen again. And um, so we are our own worst enemy when it comes to noting lessons and making them really available to the operating forces. 
Now, that's a very important statement, that last statement, making them available to the operating forces. I'm not going to criticize that operation in Kabul for lots of reasons, not the least of which, first of all, compared to Saigon, they had no time to prepare. I mean, uh, and secondly, where we had carefully decided to base everything on the Alamo, they weren't even given a choice, really, as, as far as I can tell. Uh, and so uh, it's pretty hard to criticize an effort that had to be pulled off almost without planning. And that's what I understand was really the situation. They were, they were told just to go in and do it from the airport. Um, I guess my point is this. Boy, we ought to pull that operation apart very quietly, professionally, not, not politically. And we ought to pull Saigon apart, and we ought to pull any other apart. I, I did just for fun, Ian. I, uh, I identified 18 embassies or U.S. Uh, entities that I think might have to be evacuated on almost no notice. There's a lot of them out there. This is, this is a dangerous time. And they aren't all going to get saved by special operations forces. Marines are the most admired reaction force the United States public believes in. And they believe in us. So I would say that one of the big problems that ought to be added to the Expeditionary Warfare School is Get a team of two or three captains and tell them to evacuate some city somewhere. Give them the whole situation. Build a game around it or, or give them another kind of situation. But let's let's test their ability to think through the problem. Like I said, what are the vectors and how do you deal with each one? And the vectors can change on you. Panic wasn't a vector when we started. It was much simpler when we just had a the pin map and roots, but panic became huge, huge. In fact, the buses were primarily defended against who? The mobs in the streets. Now, in the end, the, the last convoy, I was with it, was shot up pretty badly, but it was shot up right outside the Alamo, literally outside the Alamo, just almost to the gate. And General Kerry dispatched Cobras, and that shut down the, the opposition. So um, my thought is, create a number of realistic situations. Some, somebody should be assigned an extracurricular project. Maybe the, the wargaming outfit, they, they're not used. There, there are too many bog sats going on over there and not enough realistic work. They should provide the warfighting lab or, or you um, a, a series of, of uh, planned games on different kinds of no notice or short notice marine interventions. I think it would be very useful and it would alert everybody at, at EWS to the fact that, hey, it might not just be China or the South China Sea. It might be Kenya, or it might be, I don't know, Abu Dhabi, wherever. Um, and, and it could be no enemy, but lots of panicked civilians, like Haiti. Um, it can be very dangerous without having an enemy, a, a formal enemy. Now, the North Vietnamese ran out of patience, but they did give us one day before they... Well, they not really. They 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 used several barrages, like I said, and they they killed our gate guards right in the very first one. The Marines at the gate landed, killed them both, um, and then they blew up all the planes in the strips at Tonsonud Airport. So that was the end of the planned. See, 
the helicopter lift wasn't the way that the Joint Chiefs wanted to evacuate Saigon. They wanted to go out in transports, fixed-wing transports. Well, that ended overnight. Tansanut was burning. The runways were closed. So helicopters were the only answer. So you have to turn on a dime. And Marines should be able to turn on a dime. We should be able to do what uh, Randy Gangle and his guys did in Bangladesh, coming out of of uh, the sandbox. They went in on a to the tornado uh, review uh, welfare thing. Thousands of dead cattle and thousands of dead uh, people in piles. Uh, I, I just, I, I think there is room for more emphasis on planning on your feet. Or if you want to call it executing and planning almost as just a continuous cycle. Plan, execute, plan, execute, change the plan as the conditions change. But maybe a two or three day exercise and keep changing it and reviewing it at the end of the day. How would you do it different? I, I think it'd be great. Yeah, well, I will, um, sir, I'll put in a, a plug for at least the crew like center approach in a couple ways is, you know, getting, just getting the knowledge out to the operating forces for starters, you know, having you on this that we're able to share out, I think, you know, that's, that's just a good first step to, to, get that, get your experience and that, that awareness wider. So, you know, we'll try and do our part for that. And then in, in terms of wargaming, we, we do a lot of that here through the center and support the schools. And Neo is on my list of scenarios to write for, uh, for the game mechanics that we do. So um, I, I think we have a lot of good reasons to, to do that. Yeah. Try to, try um, to have, you're, you're good at this. Try to have, uh, try not to give them a tried and true scenario. You know, you can make it up. It doesn't have to have any basis in reality. It it could just be realistic in the sense of all these things could happen. Doesn't have to and pick a place on the map. You know, you need a map, but I wouldn't worry too much about it about tradition here. Oh, uh, you, we, you, we have maps, sir. In in my personal philosophy of scenario development, is to give it lots of really nasty hooks and see what you do with it. So, there you go. Yeah. If I draft it, it'll be in there. Okay. Now there is an element of danger and I want to point this out because I don't want to. Some of the actions we took come very close to at a minimum conduct unbecoming. All right. They might cross that line. Um, and we didn't care because there was no time. There were no assets. There was only, we, we had to build a plan with assets that we could put our hands on and, and we did. Um, there is also risk that you will end up getting used um, and it happened. Uh, I'm not going to go into any detail, but I evacuated a family that turned out to be the head of the gold mafia in South Vietnam. Okay. And I was asked to evacuate them by a senior officer I had worked for previously, had no idea what I was doing. But, but anyway, I got arrested as I came back into the gate and put in jail the night before the evacuation. So you can make mistakes, but there was no way to know it was a mistake. Um, and all of the confusion, he had taken it and he disappeared. Uh, he wasn't a Marine, but I had worked for him in JCRC and he, you know, anyway, the, the criminal got away, probably with a lot of gold. <laughs> and I went to jail overnight until General Smith heard about it. Yeah, well, no, I think that's exactly the kind of, you know, really, really hard and time critical decisions that we don't really get a lot of exposure to, you know, and what, you know, what do you do? Do you do a background check or do you get the human being out? You know? Oh, Christ, you don't have time. We had, we had uh, scuba gear in the trunks of the Fords and you could put three people. They're very small people, three people in a trunk on oxygen 
and they had flak jackets around the trunk. And that's how we got them through the gates because by the 27th, we had to run Arbon. We had to run a, a gauntlet of, of, of rioting Arbons to get into the Alamo. So life has gotten tough. Not only are the North Vietnamese closing, but Arbon is mutiny. Uh, all happened, all true. Um, I probably wasn't as uh, systematic as I was in that piece I sent you, the bulleted, the bulletin lessons. But uh, I am, I, I would happily help in any way. I'm not pretending to to try to interfere, but I would help in any way uh, to anyone that wants to work on uh, on some sort of useful package. But I would focus it at EWS. Well, as it happens, well, as it happens, uh, we're having a conversation about wargaming with them this afternoon, so um, I throw that onto the the agenda. Um, so we're I'm looking at the clock. We're about over an hour, so I don't have any other questions um, from the audience or my answer. So I'm happy to give you uh, any closing comments or thoughts you'd like to share before we go. No, I want to thank all of you for putting up with it. Um, Get the bitter end, which is the Marine Corps' official history of the end of Vietnam. And there's a whole chapter in there uh, on this, um, on, on just the evacuation in Saigon. And, uh, and it, it pretty well captures a lot of what I said. The momentum and speed of the change, of the changes in the situation is, is critical. And whatever we train, it has to have the changing situation. Uh, the enemy situation was changing. The political situation was changing. And the situation within the city was changing all the time and not in the same ways. So whoever ends up getting one of these things has a real uh, difficult sandwich in their lap. And thank you, all of you. I. I loved being a Marine on active duty, and I'd, I'll be happy to contribute in any way I can without interfering. All right, great. Again, um, I'm, we'll have that offer out there. Um, uh, Mr. Walters just put in a link, and when we post this on our website, I'm gonna make sure we put a link to the bitter end in there so people can go directly to it because it is available electronically. Um, so to Colonel Wood, sir, thank you very much for your time today. Um, and uh, to everyone in the audience, thanks for joining us for our final broadcast of 2021. We are already deep in the programming for next year, so make sure you're following us on social media for those updates. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll be doing some more year review retrospectives on both the broadcast, our top website articles, and more. So watch for those and see if your favorite content from this year made the list. And finally, to uh, Colonel Wood, to yourself, and to everyone out there in the Team Crelac community, we wish you and yours a very happy holiday season and new year, and we will see you all again in 2022. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.